I'm so happy to welcome Kelly Carlin to the podcast. She is a writer of the highly acclaimed memoir, A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George, which was published in 2015. She previously earned her undergraduate degree from UCLA and a master's degree in Jungian Deaf Psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She hosts her own podcast, Waking from the American Dream, interviews comics on her Sirius XM show, The Kelly Carlin Show, and has traveled to speak her truth at conferences around the world. I recently watched Kelly on Laughing Matters, Carlin's Legacy, which was a program released on George Carlin's birthday, May 12th, uh, supporting the National Comedy Center located in Jamestown, New York. After viewing that, I thought, wow, it would be fascinating to speak with her. And I reached out and am thrilled that she's joining me here today. Kelly, welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I so thoroughly enjoyed reading uh, Carlin Home Companion in recent weeks. As I was mentioning to you before we started recording, it's been uh, something that I've really dove into having some time here during quasi-quarantine with coronavirus and everything going on. And one of the topics that you really explored in that book is this concept of legacy and how one can either embrace or perhaps walk away from a legacy. And I'm just curious about how have you navigated that in your life? Because it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, I, and I'm still navigating it. And it, it changed dramatically after my dad died. And it's, it's, it has changed uh, even over the last 12 years. But yeah, I mean, you know, in different phases of life, it affects one who is growing up in the shadow of or in the family of or in the realm of someone who's, you know, has a big impact in the culture or in society or even just a big impact in your neighborhood or, or your city, you know. Uh, and at first I didn't really even, I wasn't consciously aware of it. I mean, I was consciously aware of my dad being famous and who he was and the impact he was having in the world because people would say it right in front of me. You know, people would just be gushing over my dad or gushing over him in my presence. And so that I think unconsciously really impacted my, my own self identity and where I was supposed to fit in the world and, and didn't really even start grappling with that until well into my thirties when it became more of a conscious, conscious thing I was thinking about, um, after my mom died and I started writing my story, uh, at that point and knew that it was going to be, or first didn't know it was going to be uncomfortable for my dad, but, but I just knew there was this story that I had inside of me and that I felt like I hadn't really shown up in the world yet. Um, and certainly as a creative, I hadn't really shown up in the world. I was just always trying to kind of find, um, I don't know, trying to find my place in the world. I spent a lot of my life trying to find my place in the world. And then I wrote a solo show and it made my dad uncomfortable because I talked about some personal things as one does in a solo show. <laughs> yes. But part of it was my own reaction to my parents' uh, addictions mm -hmm. and the chaos that, that I'd seen uh, during those years. And that made my dad really uncomfortable. My dad was not a person who talked about his life on stage. He wasn't Richard Pryor. 
uh, or other comics who kind of unzip themselves on stage. And, and that was the first time I think I really became aware of like legacy in my life. And the fact that like, there was possibly some that, that I, I felt like I was breaking a rule in some way and that I was possibly threatening my dad's reputation in a way, which is silly because he was a counterculture guy and people clearly knew he did drugs and he talked about doing drugs. So it was a little confusing, but, and that's when I, I backed up and put my create my creative life kind of on hold and ended up going to grad school and getting my master's in counseling psychology. Although I was there really to study Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and mythology and, and storytelling and all that kind of stuff. But you know, and then I, I felt like I had to kind of stay safe again. I had to kind of stay around the edges. And, um, you know, it, it really, I didn't really know my relationship with legacy or my place in it. But then when my dad died, certainly everything changed. Uh, I'm an only child. And I felt like it was my job, and I still do feel like it is my job to make sure that my dad's legacy is not only preserved, but that it is um, taken care of and honored and, um, and done in a way that is about, you know, obviously his work in the world, but also through the writing of my memoir and doing my solo show before that of the same name, um, when he was, you know, uh, it was around the same time that I did both, but also talking about the broader legacy of what it means to be in the shadow of, and what does it mean to find your own way through life, uh, when this very bright, shiny object <laughs> is a member of your family. And so I, you know, it's, it's been easier for me to, um, to support my dad's legacy because I feel like I have a voice for my own life and I have a voice for my own journey and I understand my narrative a lot better. So I don't feel like when I'm taking care of my dad's legacy now that I'm disappearing myself. I feel like I'm showing up in my fullness and also taking care of the legacy. That was a lot. That was a long version of that answer. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And you touched on a few of the things that I had in my mind that I, as I was reading the book, I took notes and been listening to some of your podcasts and other things. And, you know, one of the things I, I truly appreciated when I was going through your memoir is, you know, you don't sugarcoat the your upbringing and the dynamics mm -hmm. that were part of your family. You even mentioned here uh, just in your answer that you talk about the drug use of parents and how that was quite rampant at times. You have some, uh, the sun exploding anecdote, the story there is <laughs> something that uh, certainly is memorable. Uh, I encourage everyone to, to read the book. Um, but you talk about not only the struggles your parents had with drug use, you also talk about your own use as a teenager and young adult and yep. struggles you went through. And I didn't get, I never got the sense that the intention of you sharing that information was to be salacious to yeah it yeah, was more of like this is what happened and you want it, to put that out there it, it, exactly and i think that's what was you know some of the dance i did with my dad was that my dad was afraid that the world would see it as salacious and that he would have to deal with it in some way i think and i get that like i 
like now looking back on it, it's like, I get it. Like, I don't have kids, but I can imagine like having been through a lot in my life and, you know, the ups and downs and our family been through so much. And then one of my kids suddenly going, you know, hey, I'm ready to talk about my life in the world. And, you know, and maybe there are parts that I wouldn't be ready to talk about. And and I think for my dad, he had a lot of guilt about those years. And I think he really carried that with him a lot and for forever. And as people will see in the book, there is a beautiful kind of a, not, I mean, we'd already, there was no, no need to reconcile. There was no reconciliation, but there was a beautiful kind of moment where my dad and I got to be in a, a space of healing around it all. I think I would, I would probably put it that way. And yeah, and that's the thing about, you know, when I was a kid and I, and I do talk about this in, in the memoir is even not really realizing it, but there being some sort of unspoken rule around, you know, my job is to protect my parents and my job is to protect my dad and his reputation out in the world. And so one way I did that was by pretending that everything was okay in my house, even when I probably needed a kid's therapist, you know, I probably needed some counseling. I probably needed a place for my feelings and my process and, and my experience. But, you know, that just, that wasn't part part of my life experience. It didn't happen for me. And, you know, and when people see my childhood and see some of the stuff I witnessed and was there and my parents did, you know, nowadays I'd probably be taken from my parents. <laughs> Different time. Different yeah, times. you know, and there is this thing, there is this kind of this interesting little club of us, those of us who did grow up, uh, born in the kind of the early 60s and came of age in the 70s, where our parents were just as childlike as we were. You know, there is this club of us who we know we survived it all by some of us having to grow up a little sooner and that it was crazy. There were no rules. There was no discipline, uh, you know, and, uh, but those of us who were still alive, <laughs> we feel like we made it through something. You mentioned the word mythology earlier, and that was something that came to mind as I was reading about you and, and your family and thinking about my own family and generalizing to think about every family. And I think each family has their own shared outward mythology that's kind of presented to everyone that is unconsciously agreed upon by everyone. Yep. And then the fir I think as time goes on, that gets further and further away from the quote-unquote truth of what is actually going on within the family. And it seems like your, your show and then the memoir pushed out against that and created some, some friction. And it, in the book, you talk about a way that that resolves and got to a space of healing. But I wonder, as with your background in depth psychology as well, like what what do you make of all that? That sort of shared mythology we all buy into in some ways. Yeah, I it, you know it it is what Jung calls um, the road of individuation, the journey of individuation. It's about really questioning or seeing, bringing into consciousness that shared mythology. Um, some call it, you know your personal narrative or your family's narrative, you know, and then the culture's narrative about who you're supposed to be and the roles you're supposed to play. And, you know, I really do believe it is our job in midlife 
at so, you know at some point after the age of 30 35 or so to to kind of be in crisis around that uh and and that is usually what midlife crisis is about it's that this narrative that we bought into about you know if i just become a good boy or a good girl and i follow the rules that my family taught me you know through their dynamic and then also the rules that society has taught me to be rewarded correctly i'll be okay and yet we start to see the cracks in all of that and especially around our our own family's mythology and and one of the the particular themes in my family was an ironic one which was my father was the truth teller on stage but because we were a dysfunctional alcoholic family we were we didn't know how to speak the truth to each other and and I wasn't allowed to really speak the truth about my life as it was happening. I had to pretend everything was okay, or at least I thought I had to pretend everything was okay. That was my job. Uh, you know, in, in my mind, that was my only point of control and power. So by doing the memoir, by doing my solo show, I was breaking that rule. I was breaking that contract that we had all tacitly signed up to consciously or unconsciously and said, you know what, I need to tell my story. Finally, I need to, I need to at least tell my story so that I can claim that I this is the life I actually lived and not some invisible, not some version of it that people only see, which when they see my dad, they see, you know, most people who admire my dad, really, really admire him to a sense of like worshiping him. And then therefore that kind of, I'm, I'm either put into two categories. I've got the glow of him on me. And so you mentioned I get, that you had some really nice stories about that. Yeah. And, and the projection of him onto me, which is lovely for one's ego, but for your own sense of self, you're like, but this, I don't know who I am. So how can I be looked upon in this way? So I'm either put up on a pedestal or completely invisible. And and then there's this real life in between space, which is where real life is happening and where my real life experiences are happening and friendships and relationships and things I do and passions I follow um, that are happening that um you know, are, are, are my lived life. But because of this other two things, this kind of pedestal or invisibility, there's always a confusion about self-identity. And so for me, just telling my story, and like you said, telling in a way which is like, this is what happened. Here's what happened. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it, and I'm not trying to make it worse than it is. I was just you know, naming things, you know, naming things is a powerful tool. It's the first tool. It's the first step in healing oneself is to name what you're living, name what you're feeling, name what you're seeing, name what you're thinking out loud. Yeah. And so naming, naming my journey, speaking it out loud was so, something that I had to do to really figure out then who the hell am I? And you're talking about naming. And I think of the work I do with, with patients and my own writing and journaling, this idea of externalizing, putting words, putting language to things. Uh, and it reminds me, your, your father would, would often say, language always gives you away. 
And that's a message that I hold in the back of my mind while delivering therapy. And like, what are the stories we tell about ourselves? What do we tell about our lives? What kind of language are we using? And even as we're talking about legacy here, there's different ways you could phrase it, like standing in the shadows, which has this negative value of being held back, overlooked, left behind. Or there's kind of standing on someone's shoulders, which is more positive, being lifted up and supported. And language is so important. It's just so vital. Yeah, I mean, it is how we how we place ourselves in reality. I mean, that's the way these amazing brains work, right? Um, you know, that, that language gives context to everything. And, and the thing about, you know, each of these perspectives, and that's another thing I learned too, is that there is a way to stand in a perspective and one that will always probably be alive and well inside of us somewhere. So there, you know, there's always a part of me that will feel like, I'm in the shadow, like that I'm in the dark and that it's not, you know, that there's, there's no seeing me or hearing me. And then, and, and acknowledging that when that comes up, like really recognizing like, like, oh, that's what I'm feeling right now. And what's that about? And really one of the things that freed me to see the power of one who's in the shadow is speaking of mythologies was learning about Persephone and really seeing that, her sovereignty, her own power came from the fact that she uh, was in the shadow and that in your in the shadows, in the unconscious, in the underworld, she got to find her own power and have her own realm, one of which is not touched by the light and is not touched by all of the, the powers that be out in the world. And so that that myth really helped me start to reframe, you know, my relationship with power and that power doesn't just come from what we do in the outer world and what we do in the spotlight and uh, that power can come with how do we relate to ourselves and how do we want to choose to relate to others and, and the and the dance between that. And I do also think about that um, standing on the shoulders of, and that that's really what, Ultimately, all parents want to give to their children, I believe, is that they want to give them a steady uh, pair of shoulders to stand on and that they, they want their kids to do better and they want their kids to evolve in some way. And, you know, the American dream used to be always it was about the economic betterment of the next generation. And I think for me, what I've really seen especially come to understand the last few years and certainly since my dad's death is my own wrestling with, you know, so I'll, I can't outshine my dad. I don't think that's a possibility and I don't even know if that's the point. But what are the ways I am forwarding the evolution of consciousness in my family line, both my mother and my father and I think that's why studying Jungian and imaginal psychology is fascinating for me because it is about this dance around consciousness and making things conscious and and seeing what's in shadow and owning it and being able to sit with it and not reject it and um, and let and let just the bringing of light to things 
um, transform things, you know, and, and to be in, and to be in relationship with it. So, and I, and I really feel that like, you know, I have this moment in the book and I'm, and I'm starting to actually write about this now. I've just started to write again. Okay. It's, you know, it, it takes five years. <laughs> I thought I was going to be one of those people that had a book out, you know, in 2015. I'm like, yeah, hey, I'll just sit down and write another just one. Just bang them out, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to bang out, you know, because I have friends who can do that, you know. And I'm like, oh, I'll just be one of those people. And then it was like, oh, yeah, no, I have to go. I have to go sit in uh, the underworld for a little while. <laughs> I have to go back to Persephone yeah. and hang out with her, you know, and kind Plum of. the depths. Yeah, plumb the depths and cook a little bit. And, um, but, you know, I really see that, you know, it's interesting. My dad, you know, my dad admired me and in ways that, uh, for things that he didn't have access to or didn't, didn't have time to do in his life. And really my spiritual journey was one way in which I know my father, was he was also a seeker and very hungry for truth and understanding and both my path to Pacifica and studying depth psychology and my practice and studying of Buddhism really fascinated my dad and uh, he was really in awe of both of those things and very proud of proud of me for them and so that's something I'm just starting to kind of wrestle with in my own story kind of looking at what what has happened these last 12 years since my dad's been gone and what dance have I done and what am I claiming more for myself and right. uh, and and I see that this is part of the story this the new unfolding story of myself and I appreciated how you were very open in in the book about your journey of what's the meaning what's the purpose of my life and looking at Buddhism, looking at maybe counseling, experimenting almost, like, do I want to be a therapist? That that doesn't really seem for me before that. I was kind of experimenting, going like the showbiz route and trying to figure out, well, where do I fit in? Where do I want to fit in, in all this? And almost like combining these different aspects into an integrated whole, which has I mean, which you talk about in the, in the memoir, just it takes time and takes some experimentation to figure out what fits and what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think because the stakes were so high in showbiz and, you know, you can't really go out there anonymously when you're the daughter of somebody that I I didn't have the courage to kind of follow that path earlier. It was just, it, I had a lot, I had some healing to do in my thirties and my mom died in my mid thirties and which was a huge catalyst for me as I talk about in the book. But, and I think once my dad died and he physically wasn't here anymore, um, I felt safer to, to go on his stage, like literally go on his stage and and that's a little bit of what I'm starting to write about and the amazing people that came into my life to mentor me and to encourage me to tell my story and to get on a stage and um, and in some ways refather me, you know, that they were able to hold that space for me the way my father couldn't, you know, due to his his own his own need to to be in uh, focused on his life and and for whatever for whatever reason you know there is 
my dad was a very generous man, but it was very interesting how there really wasn't space for another Carlin on stage when my dad was alive. There was just some okay. sort of tacit agreement that um, this is my territory and, 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 I, and I, you know, I, and I don't really know what that was about for him, but he never, you know, saw me, he saw me once uh, perform and my stories uh, before he died, obviously. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a dance, you know, it's about courage, finding the courage to go out and find your own path and find your own voice. And then it's a ton of experimentation and you have to be willing to fail. And uh, that's something else I really learned the last 12 years was before that I really wasn't willing to fail Um, and failing on a stage in front of people. Oh, forget it. (laughs) The horror. (laughs) Oh, truly the horror. Uh, So, yeah, that's I had to. I had to want the outcome of being seen and heard more than my fear of failure. And that's, that's what ended up happening for me. That's how got, that's how I got on a stage to, and that's how I, you know, was willing to write a book about my story. And it, uh, it reminds me one of the passages I like had sort of highlighted for me in the book and it, it's around your, your mother's death, death, which happened on mother's day. And something that I had highlighted, like you referenced Joseph Campbell and you talked about the monstrous nature of life. And in the book, you write that there is good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the joy and the suffering. And that's just the way it is. Nothing can change that. And if you think you can change it, you've missed the point. And the only way to be in this world is to participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world, mm-hmm. which I think is what our recent conversation has been about of like, how do we find meaning in all of this chaos and have this purposeful value driven life with the world caving in on top of us at times? Yeah. You know, and it is the rub. I mean, it really is, is that, you know, it holds the space that, that Buddhist thought and Buddhist practice holds so beautifully also that, yeah, there is suffering. There's, you know, it's crazy out there. There's <laughs> nowadays, it's like, it's even crazier. Uh, but, and, and there's, there is this way to be with it, that it won't overwhelm you, uh, that it doesn't have to make you collapse in on yourself. And that, nothing will ever be perfect. You know, we seek this nirvana, we seek this perfection, we seek, we seek that day where, you know, everything will be clean, and tidy and folded. (laughs) All its places. (laughs) And we'll never have to do laundry or the dishes again, you know, and it's always like we wake up, oh, the dishes are dirty again. And so, you know, it is this endless cycle. And and remembering that that doesn't mean we need to to be defeated. It 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 doesn't mean that we've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean that we're not good enough or that we're not up to the task. It's just a conversation. It's an endless conversation with life. Uh, one of my favorite poets is David White, and he he talks a lot about this conversation 
conversation we're always having with life. And I feel that's the stance, you know, where you can take it all in and not reject any of it. And then also know that sometimes you will fall into rejecting it and running away or running towards the enlightenment or the nirvana part of it. And then you'll get exhausted by either two of those strategies um, and then collapse and go, oh, yeah, that's right. I, maybe if I just breathe for a moment. <laughs> breathing is good. Breathing is good. Noticing breathing is good, too. So in, in preparing for my time with you here today, I, I, like I said, I've read the book and watched some of your speeches. And I also went back and re-listened to a lot of your dad's performances. Like those were, I remember, cassette tapes of classic gold. And that was something I, I grew up with. And I, I think about 13 years younger than you. Uh-huh. Uh, so this was like in the 80s when I think it was after my father died and when I was eight and I suddenly from having a very strict household to where I had to go to bed at a certain time, all of a sudden, like I was just up late. I was watching David Letterman and trying to talk to my classmates about it the next day. They're like, what? Who are you talking about? I don't know what's going on. So it was kind of like this other education I was getting outside yeah. outside of the Catholic school I was going to at the time. So those routines certainly wow. made with me. <laughs> yes. And and just going back and again, because I've had a lot of time at home and working from home and like walking the dog and it's just like listening to all those albums in a row, almost kind of mainlining them. Wow. Combined with everything that's going on in the country right now was so yes. surreal. I bet. That, you know, he had been talking for decades about the country being on fire and racial racial tension and failed leadership and all this stuff. And it felt more like a news report than a comedy yeah. routine. Yeah. And kind of getting back to what you were talking about, I wonder just with the world being the way it is right now, like how are you managing the discomfort, the stress of, of all that? Yeah, I am watching myself a lot. Uh, I'm so glad I have the tools that I have for coping and the understanding of what stress looks like, what anxiety, what depression is. Uh, I watched my body hijack me, basically, the physiology of my body hijack, you know, and go into that fight or flight freeze mode, you know, the sympathetic nervous system is kicked in. And, you know, we're our species is on high alert threat mode, like, oh, another species is attacking not us individually, or our country, <laughs> or our gender, uh, attacking us as a species. And so there is this, you know, honoring that my physiology, my, my living self, that's unconscious, and, you know, the more archaic structures of my survival mechanisms of my body are, you know, kind of kicked into being in charge. And so, you know, there was a lot of carbohydrate eating and weird eating and and too much alcohol and uh, just stupor and, and no no energy for, for much, uh, really functioning on like 30 percent of ability to focus and all of that. And that was like the first six weeks, I would say the first six or seven weeks was, I call it the shock and awe phase now. Hey, we're in a pandemic, like just trying to wrap my head around the new reality. 
And so, and I think that's really what all of us was doing. It's like our bodies were, were reacting to it, but our conscious minds that go about to our daily life are kind of our ego structures. Our basic ego structures were like, what? Ego is not okay with this. I'm not in charge. Uh, this something is going on here. So just, you know, and my husband and I started doing jigsaw puzzles just to like have something to like, oh. It's a beginning, a middle, and end. I can feel like I did something because I finished the train over in the right-hand corner. Finding some uh, so really getting back purpose. to basics. Yeah, in the most basic little things, and then and then there's a part of me that's been uh, loving it because I have a, a running voice in my head that tells me. I'm never doing enough for what the culture expects of me. My my expectations for myself are so high that tape runs on and off all the time. And I didn't, I'm not to be doing anything. And I have a I have a business, a coaching business. I, I work with women. It's right. called Women on the Verge. Yeah. So that was ongoing. And I had I had my work, and I'm already I already work online. I already teach online. I coach online. So that was already. There, that was all very normal and part of it. But the first six or seven weeks, it was hard. And I was doing a lot of self-care, things like that with people. But part of me is loving it. Part of me loves the fact that everything shut down and that I live by an airport. There's less airplanes in the sky. There's less traffic on the freeways in Los Angeles. There's less pollution in the air. Uh, all things that I'm happy about. And yet... It's been weird, <laughs> you know, and the scariest thing about it is that when you go through something like this, you do see how you look to towards leadership to kind of guide you. You want some adults in the room to say, OK, everyone, let's all put on our life jackets and the boats are over there and this is the plan. And it's frightening because I do feel like we've, we're living in a, a leadership vacuum in our country and um and so, and I've been saying for years, you know, that the, that leadership is missing in this country. I mean, I think nobody really looks up to much leadership anywhere, and we have to look to each other to be the new leaders. And then seeing what's happening on the streets right now and seeing this organic movement that has been obviously part of the conversation for decades and decades in this country. Um, but there is this rise of this organic leadership from the fabric of life itself, the fabric of the culture that has planned, has a path forward and just needs a voice and a platform to be heard. And they're getting it now because of, of what went down. So, so it's, it's terrifying and it's hopeful all at the same time, you know, dad was right. Everything is on fire. <laughs> the planet is fine in the end. The people are fucked. Um, pack your bag, we're folks. All, we're going away. Pack, we're going away. Um, but we're here still. And so those of us who are living through these really dynamic times, I think resiliency is the word, is the key. And so we have do everything to nourish our resilience, to feed it, to give it uh, a voice, to give it a chance. And part of that is speaking our truth. And that word resilience, again, kind of keying in on language, what, how do people do that? 
sounds awesome. How does that yeah. work yeah. in practice? You, you know, I think part of it is, is realizing that you're still here, that you're alive, and that something has helped you get here and be here. Now, obviously, there are people who are in our culture who are barely hanging on, you know, the mental health issues and homelessness, the economic divide and all of that. And yet those people are still here. So they're, you know, and for me, it's about helping us connect to something that is bigger than ourself. It can be a tree. <laughs> it can be God. It can be the mysterious thing that Jung called the self with a capital S, our inherent wholeness, our inherent higher intelligence of evolution, um, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it's like in AA, they ask you to connect to a higher power. They say, you don't have to believe in God. It can be a doorknob. We don't care what it is, but something that's bigger than your ego. And to trust that the thing that's bigger than whatever this um, is the thing that gets you through and does and does have more intelligence to you that has more wisdom can see a bigger picture can know things and so I think that's the first step is leaning into even the idea that there's something bigger than and um, and that it knows how to keep you keep you here, keep you going, keep you moving forward. And so it's, it's a dance with that. It's, it's a trust in it and feeling that and understanding that and then knowing what you have to do also, you know, and having the courage to do it. Yeah. You know, it reminds me that you were one of the recent episodes of your uh, podcast, Waking from the American Dream. You, you talked to, uh, with some other creators about a book they put out and the book was on creativity. So it was about, you know, where do the seats for all these ideas come from? How do you implement them? How do you externalize that? And one of the things that it sounds like has been important for you over the years since your father died has been connecting with other people and promoting ideas, coaching. And I think with technology these days, it's just easier to do that. It's, you know, podcasts or live streams or, you know, going out on the road and, and, and touring. But it seems like that has been really important to you to not only get in touch with your own story, your own truth, but to share that for a positive end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I mean, the reason I started the podcast, Waking from the American Dream, and I'm really pondering starting it up again, even though I've been pausing it on and off for the last three years, um, is that there is so much resourcefulness in the world that people have access to from different directions. And creatives are a great source of that because they, they honor, they listen to the source within them that is saying, you know, oh, write this play about a plant that eats people or whatever, you know, it's like, and, and following that, following the image, following the story that won't leave you alone. Or, or the ideas that look at the world outside of, you know, the way mainstream media chops things up or the way uh, mainstream religion chops things up or education. Um, you know, what are some different ways of thinking about things? And, of course, just the, the journey I've had around exploring my own consciousness, exploring my own relationship to what it means to be 
uh, a thinking person, a feeling person, an intuitive person? You know, what are all these modalities of information inside of us and what do we do with them? And and lately I've been studying a lot of imaginal psychology. You know, what is it like to be in relationship with the image, dream images, daydream images, uh, spontaneous images that come in the form of, you know, creativity or painting or a song or a lyric or language or words and and learning to 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 follow that, to be the follower and not the leader of things like that. So, yes, I'm. I'm fascinated by how people make their own way through their world, what their resourcefulness is, their relationship to it, um, and and how they've learned to get out of their own way. Like we were talking about at the very beginning of this, you know, was how do you get out of your own narrative? How do you get out of the storyline you've been telling yourself that that kind of puts you in a box? Um, So I'm fascinated by how other people have managed that. Where did they get the courage to do it? What did they have to risk to do it? And what was the reward for them um, um, when they were willing to step out of the box? Uh, and I'm still fascinated by that. I think that'll be what I talk about for the rest of my life always is how how the hell do we get out of our own ways as an individual and as a species? Because that's really what my dad ultimately was talking about was we're Getting in our own ways, folks. Greed is the thing that gets in our way. And greed is all scarcity thinking. It's all ego-based scarcity thinking. So if we can't get out of our own way with that one, then we are screwed. And so I see me, I do it more on an individual level, looking at my own ego, my own ego's needs. I love talking to other people about their stuff. And my dad was the one who kind of, you know, floated outside the outside the planet somewhere on or orbit and looked at the species and looked at the whole living thing and said, you know, you're getting in your own way, people, you know. Uh, so my dad and I are very much on the same mission in the end, I guess. Well, I appreciate you sharing your mission with, with me here today and you know, hearing you talk about all this, I mean, I could talk for a long, long time about all these different topics. And, you know, something that you also mentioned in the book is, you know, your experiences in therapy over the years and how some therapists have been really impactful. And one of the things I try to do with, I almost hate to say the word platform, but with the folks who, you know, might tune in to to hear me is trying to advocate for greater mental health and seeking out therapy, seeking out services. I think we should all have a therapist, just like we all have a primary care provider. It should just be something that is normal, so to speak. And um, it's it's good to hear you, you know, kind of talking about people getting out of their own way. <laughs> As- yeah. Yeah. And, you know, understanding our inner life, understanding the unconscious messages that feed us and shape us every single day um, to start to to, con- to to bring them into consciousness, I think is the is the biggest, most important step in 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 mental health. You know, you have to have a relationship with yourself, and some of it's chemical for sure, and some of it is the the you know the context and the perspective we're sitting in. And there's so many tools now, and you know, I think the biggest thing about it all is that. One thing that's still incredibly 
uh, shocks me is that mental health is still pathologized, that there's, you know, there's something wrong with you or you're broken or um, I can't talk to anyone about this. And there's so much shame around it. And that's really when it gets dangerous, when shame is bigger than the part of us that wants to move towards healing. And, you know, maybe like between shame and greed, those are the two downfalls. (laughs) of the of the human experience. <laughs> so I'm so I'm so glad you do that work. I you know, being a coach, I love coaching people. A lot of my work is therapeutic that I do um because I, you know, I see art as therapeutic also, you know, there's so many paths to to what therapeutic means, but I just I really take my hat off to people like you who sit with clients and uh and deal with, you know, mental health issues day in and day out. It's it saved my life. So <laughs> I deeply bow to all of you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And when in normal times with those normal in air quotes, uh, like I'm typically my job is in a primary care clinic. So it's meant to move the remove the stigma of mental health where the doctor doesn't Beautiful. hand a patient, patient a card and say, oh, here, go to this other office where you talk about mental health issues. It's just, I'm right next door. Oh, that's great. Well, I very much appreciate your time. This has been wonderful to talk with you here today. Thank you so much. And if people wanted to reach out to you on the social media or look at your stuff, like where would you direct them to? So I'm on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. And my website is kellycarlin.com. And if you're a woman and you're intrigued by the name of my program called Women on the Verge. You can go to womenontheverge.coaching.com. And it just gives a just a little tidbit there about, you know, kind of who I'm looking to work with, you know, what life situation are you in? And um, you can see that there and then reach out to me there if that's something you're interested in. Um, but yeah, you can find me on the Twitter. Mainly that's where I hang out. <laughs> the Twitter. That Twitter. There's a I lot like, of things happening on the Twitter these oh days. Oh boy, yeah, 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 yeah. There is. So, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for having these conversations and and holding this this corner of the world for all of us. Well, it's it's been a inter- entertaining, enjoyable, um, and to use a word we were talking about earlier, it's it's been meaningful. I, I think it. Hopefully other people listen to these conversations and that sparks things and it creates some some change, some movement. And that's, I think, why we why I do do some of this. So. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're a healer. So that makes sense. Well, yeah. thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye.